last week. This morning, we're wanting to dig into the third um, of the six, and it's the um, considers what it means to take our faith and put it into action, and then what that looks like when it begins to be expressed. Now, I want to say right up front that it's different for every person in here. There's not a prescribed way of what this looks like. There are some wonderful ways by which this has found expression in certain people's lives, and it might bring us together in unified ways to address some particular issues and problems, but the, even the way by which we go about addressing those issues might be unique to the ways in which God has gifted you or God has gifted me or the resources or network that we have that we bring to bear on those kinds of things. Well, an example of that arises out of our church congregation. It's a wonderful way to talk about um, an event that um, has been ongoing, had a wonderful crescendo a few weeks ago, and I'm sure will continue on in the life of our church. And that is that there are a number of people in our church who have cared deeply about what it means to bring clean water to communities that have no access to clean water. Um, I, I think I am on sound ground here and with an audience that would likely completely agree with this, that our world is not created equal. The resources in one area do not match resources in another area. Areas that have clean water um, are privileged over areas that don't have access to that. So one of the questions that comes out of the discussion of this way of looking at the gospel good news is to ask, how then do we deal with resources that we have? How do we care about the unequal distribution of some of those things? And how do we make a difference in ways that honor God, God's creation, and our part in living out the gospel? Well, there is an organ several organizations with which members of this congregation have been a part. One of those organizations is Healing Waters, and we have had um, several groups that have gone out to see the installation of water filtration systems that have been put in, both through Healing Waters and, as I said, other organizations as well. Um, I, I tried to do the calculation, and I'm not sure I have it exactly, but I think somewhere in the area of $65,000 has gone toward water filtration systems out of this congregation over the last uh, seven to ten years. And I just think that's a wonderful effort. I would love for the group that went to observe some of these installations, at least some of the members of that group, to come and join me, Larry and Joan and Aileen. Come on up here, let me grab a microphone. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about this journey, what you learned as in some ways you represent us as well as um, God's work in your life. So we're gonna, I'm going to ask just a couple of questions, and if you don't get a chance to answer the question you wanted to answer, just change the question, and uh, you give the answer as you want. But I would love, Joan, if you wouldn't mind, um, my, um, uh, the explanation for um, your return when I read about it, I heard that you went to several different locations. 
Um, did you go to three different locations in terms of installations? Three. Okay, so they were all distinct, different places. Tell us some of the characteristics of each one of those. Well, they were all incredibly different from each other. The, um, the first one was uh, San Juan Atelongo, and that was um, a church uh, that uh, Healing Waters had installed uh, a filtration system in February, and the church was donating water to a group of people that had lost their homes from a volcano the year before. 3,000 people had perished. Mm. 300 people survived, and they were housed in some 10 roof rooms, and this church was providing water for um, that that group of people. 150 had left, there were 150 um, that was still remained and wow. they were donating. And they, this church was uh, passionate in showing us um, what they were learning from um, Healing Waters. They were, were uh, uh, children's education about sanitation and hygiene, mm. women's groups that were sharing with their families and it was just an incredible, um, an incredible, you know, thing to witness. Yeah. Do you want me to? Talk yeah. About second that? place. Yeah. Tell us second about that. Second place. It was um, off in the mountains, about a four-hour drive. They were. Um, a, a, <laughs> that's that's a long way. And they there were 58 families. They had been housed by Paradise Bound, a nonprofit that uh, works with. Healing Waters, and Healing Waters had put in the um, filtration uh, a couple years ago without electricity. This village had no electricity, and we we, we walked and got to see uh, we got to see the the muddy waters coming down from the mountain that they then cleaned. And wow, and, and they did get electricity about a year ago, and they they could use it to speed up the process. So. Um, that was the second. There were there miracles happened all throughout. We had a translator that um, we, we were we got stuck on the route out to that village in a ravine. We couldn't put. We got out of the van. We couldn't push it. The translator reminded us that it was time to pray, and no sooner had we done it than two men on horseback galloped up, got off their horses came behind the no van, way. aided in pushing, and, and away we went. It just, wow. it was, just happened like that. The third uh, place where we were was um, um, in, a, in a very poor section of Guatemala City. It was dangerous. Um, there was drug addiction, alcoholic addiction. It was a forgotten part of the city. There was a church, El Refugio, that... Um, Took to uh, took to that area and managed the water filtration system that uh, they were providing for this community that did um, the uh, pretty unspeakable things, making sausage out of cow parts that were left over. They did it all during the night, and then they slept during the day. So when we rode in, they were all these ten rooms closed tight. And um, the, the beauty of it, the church was working with the youth, and they had 75 
children that they were teaching and feeding, and they felt like that was that was their way to um, to reach this community. And wow. it was just incredible. Beautiful. Thank you, Joan. Wow, what a contrast between the three locations. Um, I'd love to know, Aileen, your your um, kind of reflection on. Um, the issue of clean water, maybe healing waters itself, some of the thoughts that have resulted from this trip for you. First of all, first of all, I want to say it was wonderful to be with the Aguillans because they spoke Spanish. They could uh, help us when we were needing a little interpretation, they did have an interpreter. But the need for clean water is really paramount. And uh, the work of healing waters is outstanding. I don't, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect what I saw. It was so professional. Hmm. So sophisticated, the uh, process and uh, where these, this equipment is housed, they're small rooms, but they've been whitewashed, they're sparkling clean, and the water goes through so many uh, filtrations before it is finally dispensed. So that was pretty amazing. I mean, they gave us a demonstration. <laughs> then when the people bring back their jugs, which are huge, Oh, it looked to me like it was a 20-gallon. But anyway, it was a huge gallon. And uh, they would clean them again and then fill them, and then they even uh, put a seal around the, top, the, the, the lid. So they were very clean. But Jorge, who was the pastor who loved these people, his heart was so touched, tears in his eyes many times. Uh, he would go to new, new communities that need water, and uh, would talk to the leaders, if you really desire clean water, are you willing to follow the guidelines? And if they agreed, then there was a gentleman hired by uh, Healing Waters who had the expertise to put in these plants. And um, then they would train locals, one or two people in the community to uh, operate the system. So it's very well planned and um, operated. I think I've told you about everything. <laughs> um, at the second, well, at the third side, I do want to tell you this, is where they were doing these sausage things. But there was a young man who uh, had a bicycle, which they had made a big tray. And he put the jugs in that and would ride up and down these hilly streets. I mean, it wasn't, everything's mountainous around there. And Guatemala is beautiful. So... Uh, it was a really exciting trip. I think I learned a lot. We just uh, met people every place we went, and um, the only place where they really looked sad was at that squatter's village where they were pushed out of their homes, and um, you could just see that they were, hmm. they were not happy campers. Yeah. Thank you, Aileen. Um, Larry, you've had a good portion of your life's journey where compassionate ministry and... Um, living out your, the gospel in action has been part of your journey. I'd just like to ask, both this trip and Healing Waters, um, not so much the entity, but participating in this, how has this been part of your faith journey? Yes, um, of course, I, I thought of our mission statement to lift up Christ yeah. uh, here and in the world, and it's obvious to... Uh, stand aside of those people at those little villages with so much love in their hearts for Jesus and for their children and, and, and other fellow workers. It's quite an inspiration. Yeah. And, 
then when I reflect on all the blessings that uh, we have, and I'm sure you're all aware of the blessings that you've also have through Jesus, it's easy to, uh, to have gratitude, to have gratitude for the life that uh, our Lord allows us to live and the things that we are allowed to learn. And from gratitude, uh, in my mind, should come generosity. Generosity of spirit and of giving and helping other parts of the world and other parts of our own community to, to raise uh, up Jesus in their, in their lives so that they realize how important and wonderful he is to all of us. Wow. Thanks to the three of you for representing this place, but more than that, the love of Christ in going and just observing the things that have been done. So grateful that uh, we're on this journey with you. Thank you. So this becomes one way by which we respond to the call of the gospel and uh, react to what it means for our faith journey to actually have something come out of this relationship we have with our Creator. So let's go back to this Jeremiah passage that was read. Jeremiah 29.7 that, that says something pretty uncomfortable. The context of this is Jeremiah has written a letter. Chapter 29 contains that letter. It is addressed to the exiles who have been taken away by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, to live in a state of oppression under the rule of somebody else. So you need to hear that the chosen people of God now no longer have a land and they no longer have their own king. They are in this place where others who call themselves prophets are proclaiming that God is going to rectify all of this and give them back their land. They are the chosen people, and they need to live into that because God has picked them out of all the people in the world. And Jeremiah writes this letter to the exiles and says, hold on. What you think is going to happen is not going to happen. You're going to remain in exile. There are other portions of what Jeremiah says that indicates their posture has not yet turned so that God can offer blessing. And they continue for quite a few more years under this oppression. In the midst of this, this is Jeremiah's statement. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which you live. Well, that's pretty radical. So here you are in exile. The normal response is to plot a rebellion so you can overthrow the powers that be so that you can go back, reclaim your land. How are we going to go about doing this? Or passive resistance or active resistance in ways that undermine the oppressors Jeremiah says, I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which you live. I want you to pray that that will come to pass. Because your peace and prosperity is affected by their peace and prosperity. This is a dramatically different approach than we would expect, or at least that the exiles would expect. The storyline, in my opinion, goes back 
generations. 150 to 200 years before, the people in the northern kingdom are confronted by a prophet from the southern kingdom, Amos. Amos is challenged to the northern kingdom, and please remember that in this time, the Israelite kingdom, the northern kingdom, has experienced a significant amount of economic growth, prosperity, peace. They've expanded their territory. What has resulted, though, has not been the kind of shalom peace that would be true for everyone in the northern kingdom. Instead, Amos comes and speaks up in the midst of it and says, Oh, you arrogant people. You people who um, come with uneven weights and buy and sell in dishonest ways. You treat people like property. You disregard the welfare of those who are living in the country with you. His message is harsh and direct. It is the same message of arrogance that Jeremiah is addressing to the people who are in exile. They have not yet learned the lesson of what it means to stand in the blessing of God and recognize that it is God's, not mine. Prosperity is this breeding ground. It can be a breeding ground for gratitude, but it can also be a breeding ground for arrogance. That I am responsible for that all that has happened I am entitled to all that there is. And whatever disparity there is between me and someone else is a disparity to my good if I will just undertake what it means to get what I deserve. Amos confronts it. The response to Amos, they send him back to the southern kingdom. Get out of here. Leave. Who are you? The response to Jeremiah's prophetic word? Well, a letter was sent, put him in jail. The response to those kind of prophetic messages are often the response of either defensiveness, guardedness, or I'm going to strike back. I'm going to minimize your message to justify my position. That's a typical response. So when we think about this way of social justice or social action. We have to recognize that the message that we might hear to wake up and see some things around us is rarely an easy message to hear. It confronts us in our comfort. It challenges us in our accepted ways of doing things. It calls us to ask some very difficult questions. And I think that it's compounded because some of the issues are so large they feel overwhelming. Systems that create oppression. Systems of inequity that result in judicial incarcerations that when you look at the statistics, it raises all kinds of questions. And yet, when called to take action, 
what do I do? How do I step into such big problems? Sometimes we raise the names of people who are like pillars of social justice work. I'm not sure that helps either. We can think of William Wilberforce or Catherine Booth or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr. or the list goes on and on. As soon as you start mentioning those names, I go, okay, well, that's reserved for the super all-stars. <laughs> I don't see that being the trajectory of my life to step into those kinds of places. So once again, it kind of leaves me either with my breath taken away or discouraged because I don't know what to do or defensive because I don't think I can do anything. If we step into the New Testament, we look at the life of Jesus, we look at the life of the early church, we find some things that I think are challenging in the best sense of the word to us. If we go to Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, we'll read the story of problems that were arising in the church. They were trying to take care of those in need, particularly the widows, who even more so than now, left them in a place in that culture where they were struggling to find provision. And so there was a dependency upon the church to step into that place and help. But there were some complaints of inequitable distribution. Those from whom the complaints were coming were those that would have fallen under a Greek tradition, uh, uh, members of the church who um, had come out of areas where they had taken on the Greek language and some of the Greek culture. And those particular individuals, the widows out of that tradition, it seems were left out of some of the distribution of resources for those in need. There are so many things that can be drawn out of the story. One of those, though, that the leaders of the church decided to appoint others who could take care of this distribution. I am told that as you look through the names of all of the individuals that were put in charge of the resources, they were all individuals with names of Greek origin, meaning that they entrusted the resources to those who were being left out or oppressed left on the margins, with the notion that, well, let's trust them with this process since they know where the shortcomings of the process are. Well, that goes against most of the systems that I've observed or that I've participated in. Usually those in power think they know exactly how to make things work well. Here we have an early church that says, well, Let's just entrust those who feel like they're on the outside and let them organize it for all of us. I don't, I'm not saying that's the magic formula to everything. I'm just saying, wow, the early church is wrestling with what it means to step into these places. Jesus gives us instruction, Sermon on the Mount. He addresses issues of social inequity in the culture in which he lived. He very clearly says, if you get compelled to go one mile... Go to the second mile on your own volition. 
carry that stuff for the soldiers if that's what they're compelling you to do. Somebody comes and asks for the coat off your back, give them your cloak also. Somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. It is this recognition that there is inequity in the systems in which you're living, but your response should not be a response of revenge. It should be a response born out of your faith in the way in which grace has changed your life's journey. He tells stories that remind us of this as well. The story of the Good Samaritan. Talk about crossing social boundaries. An affront to those who say, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, great, I can do that. Just remind me again, who's my neighbor? Oh, glad you asked. Let me tell you a story. And in the story, the hero is not the hero that any of the listeners would pick. And it is a message that if you have not taken time to hear the gospel message of who is included in that term neighbor, then you've missed the whole point of the good news. Jesus goes further than that and says, well, if you're not getting it through the story, he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, pray for your enemies. That's hard to do unless we're praying for their defeat. But that's not the call of Jesus on the lives of people who are praying. It falls in line with what Jeremiah tells us in this chapter. Seek out the peace and prosperity of the city in which you live. Pray for that. They may be the ones who have taken you into exile. But I am the Lord your God. I am in charge, says our Creator. This call to a place of justice and mercy. It, it doesn't stand by itself. It comes out of what happens in our time one-on-one -on -one with God. It, it arises out our interaction with fellow believers where we learn from one another. It becomes this outward expression. So to that end, I would like to take you to one last place in Scripture. John chapter 19 tells us the story of Jesus on the cross. So I'd like to take you to the foot of the cross this morning. I, I don't know all of the details. There have been so many depictions. Even in Israel, outside the gates of Jerusalem, there are multiple locations of where it might have happened. I, I don't know exactly whether the scene was elevated or it was down beneath the hill of the skull, Golgotha. I, I'm not sure. It just talks about it being outside the city walls, it being a crossroads, most likely, of people who would see it taking place. But in this scene, if you can picture yourself transported to those hours, you are at the scene of a great injustice. 
both a temporal injustice and what seems like an internal injustice. The temporal one, the, the, the one in the moment where a trial tooks, takes place with accusations and condemnations and a cry from those who are in authority to have him crucified. It is an entire process of gross injustice. But on an eternal scale, that Jesus would die for our sins seems like an eternal injustice. And yet it was Jesus' act of love. So I would invite us to this place at the foot of the cross to recognize that to step into this way of living out the gospel, it should never be out of guilt for what we haven't done, but it should be a result of how we've been loved by what Christ has done. If we operate out of guilt, we'll lose our energy very fast. We'll become resentful. We'll sometimes become very legalistic about how everybody should do it a particular way. It becomes the social gospel without the gospel. But if we stay connected to the love that Christ has exhibited at the cross, it becomes for us a sustaining love, a sustaining inspiration so much so that we cannot turn away from what we need to do. I find myself intrigued in chapter 19 at the cross, where Jesus, in the midst of all that has gone on, several words are spoken, but these words have resonated with me this week in ways they've not resonated before. He sees both the writer, the disciple who became the writer, John, and his, Jesus' mother. Jesus' mother, we don't know exactly what happened to Jesus' father, but he's not in the scene. Whether he passed away or is just no longer there for other reasons, Mary's alone. Her son Jesus is about to pass. In that culture, the vulnerability of this woman, her dependence, and her lack of resources in this moment are profound, probably more than I can imagine. In this moment, Jesus says these words, John, take care of my mom. When I get overwhelmed at how big the systems seem, when I get taken with problems that seem bigger than I can wrap my arms around. What a wonderful message. How simple. John, please take care of my mom. This morning, really, the call is not for you to change a world system. It's for you to be willing to hear the voice of Christ in your life. When I might hear Christ say, D, pay attention to your neighbor across the street who's mourning 
the loss of his wife. D, don't close your eyes or shut off your ears when somebody's wanting to tell you their story. When I was a kid, there was a saying that was used in elementary school to help us learn how to cross the street. I think it was borrowed from an ancient thing that used, ancient, in our culture, American culture, in crossing railroad tracks. On railroad track signs used to be the word, stop, look, and listen. My elementary school teachers would teach us that before we went across the crosswalk. My sister, a few years older than I am, she was one of those crosswalk guards that had the neon thing and with the thing over the shoulder. Some of you have never seen one of those, but it was a real sign of honor because she could stand out there, stop traffic, and wave kids across. I never got to be one of those, but I will never forget the words that always were spoken, stop, look, and listen. If there would be a slogan that I would associate with the social action way, it would be that phrase. We're so busy, sometimes it's tough to see how little fruit is coming out of our journey. Stop in the midst of our busyness. Stop. Look around. Don't be afraid by what you see. You're not called to fix the world. There's one Messiah. It's not you or me. But pay attention. Look. And then listen to two things. Listen to those who hurt. Hear their story. Let that story seep into your life. And listen to God. Is it possible that God might speak a word to you as he did to John? If that word to you this morning came, in its simplicity, what might it be? This morning doesn't drive us to a place of feeling guilty. It's driving us to the cross, the place of love. And in that place of love to simply say, Oh Lord, at the foot of the cross, I recognize the injustice that's all around. Where do I go from here? Help me to stop long enough to see and to hear the voice both of those around me and of you. Father,